0: Well, I'm hoping that seeing that was at least a little bit unsettling for you. That was Pastor Rob Bell, and uh, he recently, as you may know, caused quite a stir with his new book called Love Wins. Bell is a very influential pastor of a very large church up in Michigan, and as you can see, he's a very gifted guy, a very dynamic and compelling speaker. And in his book, he makes a case for considering the possibility that ultimately God's, God's love will win everyone over, either in this life or at some point in the next life, that every single human being will eventually be saved and be in heaven, and that hell will ultimately be empty. A view known as universalism. As you can imagine, his book, the release of it, led to a flurry of response and activity on the Internet, And the debate even garnered so much national attention that it it came to a forefront uh, as an article in Time magazine, the cover article about a month ago, titled, What If There Is No Hell? Stirred up by Rob Bell's book. And as you heard, Bell believes that that the historical hardline position that evangelicals take on hell, that it's a fiery place of eternal punishment for the unsaved, is a notion that serves to drive people away from Christianity who might otherwise embrace it. And he grieves over that. And I do think he's right on that point. The doctrine of hell is offensive to many people, and admittedly, it does drive people, some people, away from Christianity. But the larger question is this. What does the Bible actually teach about hell? And further, is the biblical doctrine of hell... Something we can alter or tamper with or change in order to make Christianity more palatable to more people. Well, my purpose today is not really to critique Rob Bell or his book. Others have done that uh, in mass in the last month or so. What I'd like to do is present a broad overview of the biblical teaching on hell. Now, maybe you skipped last weekend thinking that was hell and you're going to hear about heaven this weekend, but... This is Hell Week, okay? I do encourage you to go online if you did miss last weekend because we talked about heaven and it's a glorious reality and a wonderful place. And I want you to know what the Bible has to say about that. And you need to know I don't really want to talk about hell. I'd much rather talk about heaven or spiritual growth or prayer or 1 Corinthians or the price of rice in China or anything, really more than hell but hell you should know is a very prominent theme in scripture and if i'm going to be faithful to my calling as a minister of the gospel to present the whole counsel of god then i must not avoid the harder truths of the bible plus if hell is real if it is real and real people are really going to go there someday then it's actually a loving thing to warn people about that in advance wouldn't you agree I mean, if you were convinced that an unspeakable disaster awaited a particular person, wouldn't it be a loving thing for you to warn that person ahead of time in hopes that they might avoid that disaster? Paul wrote this, Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And that's what I'm hoping to do today through God's word. You know, the subject of hell raises many questions in people's minds including some very tough theological questions, as was alluded to, about the nature of God and the character of God himself. You need to know that in the time we have this morning, I'm not going to be able to tackle every question that people have asked about hell. But I am going to recommend several books to you throughout the course of this message so that you can study this more on your own. And the one I want to recommend to you right now is this little book called What is Hell? Basics of the Faith series by Christopher Morgan and Robert Peterson. It's a very Easy read, about 33 pages. I sat down and read it this week in about a half hour, and it is a an excellent theology of the biblical doctrine of hell in a very readable form. We, we carry these in our bookstore. I'd highly, highly recommend it to you. What I want to do, and there's a, a study outline in your worship folder. You can pull that out and uh, have your Bible ready. I'd like to begin at the same place that we began last weekend when we talked about heaven, where we saw that heaven has overwhelming support in the Bible for its existence. Well, what about hell? Is hell real? Well, we need to know that the Bible refers to hell or final judgment 61 times. Let me give you a few examples. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses eight and, nine, 8 and 9 in the NIV reads like this. God will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our, our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, praise God. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So there's a concept associated with hell and final judgment, the wrath of God. Hebrews 9.27, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Revelation 21.8, I've been re- rereading Revelation this week, read, read the entire book, fascinating, fascinating book. It says this, verse 8, but as for the cowardly and the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and in case people feel exempt so far, and all liars... Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So many people will die twice, a physical death and then a spiritual death. Revelation 20, 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Matthew 25, 46, these will go away into eternal punishment. Revelation 14, 11, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night listen people can debate what hell is going to be like and how hot it's going to be and whether or not the flames are literal or figurative but we can't make the mistake of thinking that the bible is unclear or hazy on whether or not hell exists it's very clear it's all over the pages of scripture in these verses the bible speaks of hell as punishment as eternal destruction as banishment or separation from the presence of god as a place of unbelievable suffering. Many of the Old Testament writers and every single New Testament author speaks of the reality of the future punishment of sinners. And surprisingly, Jesus Christ himself stands out as the chief supporter and defender of the doctrine of hell. Jesus spoke often about the existence of a real hell. Just as a sampling, look at Matthew 5, 22. The words of Christ, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Matthew 5:29. if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Implying there that hell is the place where sin will be punished. How about this one, Matthew 10, 28? Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Who's he talking about? God. (laughs) He's saying fear God. Remember, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yes, his love. Yes, his mercy. Yes, his grace. But we don't start there. We start with the fear of the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom so that we appreciate the love and mercy and grace of God. Say, did Jesus ever speak sternly to people about their future judgment in hell? Well, Matthew 23, 33, speaking to some church people, actually, some religious people, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? In Matthew 25, 41, then he will say to those on his left at that future division of humanity, the final judgment, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So Jesus talked about the judgment of hell a lot. He spoke about a place of eternal fire, Matthew 18, 8, eternal punishment, Matthew 25, 41, a fiery furnace where there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, Matthew 13, 42. So if the Bible's telling us the truth about what Jesus said, about his words, then Jesus without a doubt, believed in a real hell where real people deserve to go to pay for their real sin and rebellion against a real and holy God. Jesus even provided a glimpse into hell in Luke 16. Just like last weekend, we saw the Bible contains a vision of heaven. The Bible also gives us a glimpse into what hell is like. We'll look at it in a moment, but first we need to understand some important terms some words that the bible uses especially the new testament to describe hell the first is the word hades you've heard that word right hades that's the place where departed human spirits of unbelievers go where they reside when they die it's a place of torment it's a place of waiting final judgment Sometimes this Greek word is translated hell in our English translations. The Old Testament equivalent to Hades is Sheol. That's the Hebrew. Hades is the Greek. Then there's Gehenna, not Gehenna, Gehenna. (laughs) Gehenna means three in one, actually. It's a beautiful picture of the Trinity. Three tributaries coming together in confluence into one. That's Gehenna, but Gehenna was the smoldering trash heap outside of Jerusalem where they burn their trash. Different. Jesus used Gehenna as an image of the lake of fire, and it too is often translated hell in our English versions. So Hades, Gehenna, then there's the lake of fire, which is the place of final judgment and torment of the lost, of the unsaved. And in a few places we see this word, word the abyss, the, the the bottomless pit, and that's, a region of the underworld where some demons are being confined. It's also called Tartarus in Second Peter 2, 4. So there is a hell. The Bible talks about it. Jesus spoke about it. But what is it like? Well, Jesus told a story once. If you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 16, and we're going to begin reading the story in verse 19. Luke 16, verse 19 reads like this there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day so jesus said i'm gonna tell you a story it's about this rich dude well-dressed and well-fed verse 20 and at his gate was laid a poor man named lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table just the scraps the leftovers Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores, a pretty pitiful state. Well, the poor man died, and he was carried by the angels. That's where we get that notion, carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Interesting. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out. Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to go dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. Whole theology of hell in one verse right there. But Abraham said, Child, I think that's funny. Abraham had been around for millennia, right? So he'd call about anybody, kid, child, kid, son. Remember, that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he, the rich man, said, well, then I beg you, Father, to send him, send Lazarus to my father's house. Back on the earth, right? For I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. That's the Old Testament scriptures. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. There's a double meaning there. Well, that's quite a story. Some people believe that this is one of Jesus' many parables, fictional stories that he often told to get a point across. And that may be the case. But to me, the fact that Jesus used real names here, Lazarus and Abraham, leads me to believe that this is nonfiction. That this is an actual occurrence, a glimpse into Hades at that time. And when I read this story, I picked up on eight things about Hades or hell. That I want us to explore this morning first is that hell is a place of agonizing torment He said I'm in torment in this flame Now let's not be fooled. You've heard people talk, right? Oh, yeah, my buddies and I we're going to hell. It's gonna be great We're gonna have this party No Hell is not fun. It's not gonna be a big party not going to be a place to have a bunch of fun with your friends it's a place of torment anguish frustration anger regret a place of suffering it says in hell he was in torment but why what's so tormenting about existence in hell or in hades i think the other descriptions tell us why number two hell is a place of conscious existence part of the torment of hades is the fact that people there are fully conscious and aware of themselves and their surroundings. You see, death does not end at all in the biblical worldview. It is simply a doorway into a new realm of existence, and that's a conscious realm of existence. It says the rich man knew who he was. It says that he could see. It says that he looked around at his surroundings, that he recognized people, he knew their names, he could talk. He was conscious of space and time. He was still alive. Death was not extinction. I wonder if that came as a shock to him. This rich guy who on the earth pretty much had his way because of his money. Maybe he thought that while he was here he could live however he wanted and it wouldn't ultimately matter. Maybe he thought, you know, death's going to be the end. Black screen, that's it. He was wrong. That realization alone would be pretty tormenting, don't you think? To wake up, in Hades, and go, no, no, tell. this has got to be a bad dream. Somebody wake me up, please. Not only that, he was able to feel things. Hell is a place of sensation. Maybe we could even say physical sensation. What did he say? Send Lazarus, please. Send Lazarus to go get me some water. Even a, a drop on my tongue would bring me great relief, great refreshment. Now, I don't know whether or not in Hades, Lazarus had an actual finger that he could dip in water or whether the rich man had an actual tongue that was parched with thirst. I tend to think not, since their bodies would have still remained in their graves on the earth until that future resurrection. I think the rich man was just using language that he was accustomed to using while he was here on the earth. And if it's true there weren't physical bodies in Hades, wouldn't that have made it worse? Wouldn't his torment be worse since he didn't really have a literal tongue that could be refreshed with water? This agonizing inability to find any relief. I believe this story tells us that people in hell will feel sensation, that we might even call physical. They will have an appetite for drink, for refreshment, for food, for sleep, for sex. They'll also sense a need for comfort and pity and relief. But all of those desires will go unfulfilled. They will live in a state of perpetual, unending frustration. And I believe anger. I think that's what gnashing of teeth has to do with this. I want all these things and I can't have them. Another reason hell will be a tormented existence, number four, is because it's a place of regret. Regretful remembering. Did you notice this? Abraham tells the rich man, hey, I I know you're in agony now, but I want you to remember something. Do you remember your life back on the earth? Which implies that he could remember his life back on the earth. Last week, we noted that people in heaven are going to remember their lives on the earth. Here, it's implied that people in hell will remember their lives here also. And that has to be excruciating. That has to be regret filled. Talk about frustration. You know, there's a debate over just how enlightened the residents of hell will be. Will they be kicking themselves for not ever seeing God for who he really is? Will they beat themselves up for failing to seek after God, for treating God with contempt? Will they agonize forever over their treatment of the gospel as just a common thing, something not precious? Will they be tormented forever by the knowledge that every opportunity they had to bow their knee to Jesus, they smugly bypassed? Will they think to themselves, what on earth was I thinking? Why, oh why did I not respond when I heard the gospel? Why did I not bow my knee to Jesus Christ? Why did I not get saved? Why did I not seize those opportunities that came to me when I heard the word of God in church or on television or in a a magazine, or wherever they may have heard it, why did they not respond? A place of regretful remembrance, the excruciating emotional pain of memory and regret will only compound the physical torments of hell. Note also that five, number five, hell is a place of final justice. Final justice. Abraham looks at the man, the rich man, across the way, and he says, Sir... Remember, you had your good life back on the earth, remember? Lazarus had a horrible time there, but now he is being comforted. Hell is a place of final justice for everyone who failed to love God with all their hearts as he deserves and who failed to love their neighbors as themselves. And by the way, that's all of us. All of us deserve hell. Every sin will be punished justly and rightly and appropriately and proportionately. God is a just judge. Hell will be a place of final justice. Then Jesus went on to state number six that hell is a place of fixed separation. Fixed separation. I, I know you'd like to. Jesus yells out at the rich man across the divide. I know you'd like to, but you can't come over here where I am. You can't come over here where Lazarus is. Don't you see it? There's this huge gorge, this chasm, this expanse, this divide that separates us. There's no crossing back and forth. Now, that tells me that at least at that time, Hades and paradise were in some sort of close proximity close enough that people could see and recognize each other from the other side but yet there was no crossing over now, i don't want to make light of this but this is kind of heavy and maybe you need a little relief so let's just illustrate this from right here in this room right now okay let's just say for the sake of illustration that everybody on this side of the aisle is in paradise amen And everybody on this side of the aisle is in Hades. Sorry about that. Now look around. Just look around on your side. You probably know and recognize some of the other people. Maybe they sit around you every week. Maybe you know their names. Now look at the other side. Notice some of the people over there. Maybe you know some of them as well. Or if you're over here, maybe you know some of them. But you know, if if this is the good side and this is the bad side, then in this scenario, some of you would want to go over there to the good side, right? And maybe some of you would want to go over here and rescue someone and bring them over to your side. But what you fail to see is down the center aisle here is a river of flowing molten lava. And you can't cross back and forth. Your positions are fixed. Well, that's what he's talking about. That's Part of this story that the separation is fixed. You can't traverse from one side to the other. You see, hell is a place of separation. Painful, awful, tormenting, agonizing, fixed separation in three ways. Separation from people on the other side. Abraham said, you you can't come over here. Separation from people in paradise. Separation from loved ones on the earth. See, the rich man couldn't go back and warn his five brothers. He had to try to send somebody else, but that wasn't possible. But mostly separation from God. By far, this is the worst separation of hell, is separation from God. Hell is a place where God isn't. His presence is not manifest in hell. You see, people who don't want God now won't have him forever. But what most people don't recognize is that every shred of goodness that they experience in their lives here and now comes from God. They don't realize that. Every good gift, every perfect gift, the Bible says, comes down from the Father of lights. Every glint of hope, every sunrise, every smile, every laugh, every warm conversation with a friend, every cup of coffee, Every hint of happiness and joy, all good things come from God. This very day of life on earth was purchased for us by Jesus on the cross because by rights, all of us should have woken up in hell today. And we didn't. Praise God. If you can't find a reason to be grateful today, be grateful for that. Jesus purchased another day of grace, another non-wrath day for you today. You see, the question that puzzled so many of the Bible writers was not how could a loving God send people to hell? It was how in heaven's name could a holy and righteous God be patient with sinners and not completely obliterate them off the face of the earth? That was the question they wrestled with. How could God be patient Remember how mad Jonah got that God was patient and merciful to the people of Nineveh? God, how can you do that? You're just, you're righteous, you're holy. How can you be patient with sinners and not cast them immediately into hell? That's the question the Bible writers wrestled with. How can he give any of us another day of life on earth and still be just? And the reason he can do this now and be just is because of the cross. Jesus' death on the cross purchased for believers and unbelievers alike every day of existence not spent in hell. Because that's what we all deserve. That's one of the glorious beauties of the gospel. But I'm way ahead of myself. Heaven is where God dwells. Hell is where God is absent. Imagine being shut out from the presence of God forever. That's hell. That's someone's worst nightmare come true. As a result, number seven, I believe that hell is a place no one would want other people to go. People joke about this, don't they? Sometimes people angrily say to other people, you can go to hell. But if they ever had a glimpse of hell, I don't think they'd ever say that again. One of our men last Sunday night said, hey, you need to read the book 23 Minutes in Hell. Have you ever read that? You remember 90 minutes in heaven, right? And Don Piper. Well, this is 23 minutes in hell by a guy named Bill Weesey. And I actually had a copy I'd never read. So I sat down and read it all in one night. It was a guy who believes that God gave him nearly a half hour experience in hell. And I think if, you know, maybe 10 seconds would be would do all of us well. To just experience the reality of hell. And if we did, if we understood what hell is really like, we would not want anybody else to go there. The rich guy who was actually there said, I beg you, please send Lazarus to my parents' house to warn my five brothers about this place. I don't want any of them to experience what I'm experiencing. Now, I don't know if he'd been close to his brothers or not. Some brothers are very close. Others have long standing grudges and feuds and resentment and hurt with five brothers. I think it's likely this guy had probably some of each. But it didn't matter. Please warn them. I don't want any of them to come here. I'm hoping that one of the reactions you'll have to the message today is that you won't want anybody that you know to end up in hell. Not your brother or sister, not your mom or dad, not any of your friends, not your nasty boss, not your bitter rival not even that uncle who abused you growing up. I'm not discounting the severity of that or the sin of that or the abuse of that, but I think if we really understood what hell is, we wouldn't want anybody to go there. We would pray for him. We'd pray for him. Final truth I saw in this story is revealed by what Abraham said in reply to the rich man's request to send Lazarus back to his home and warn his brothers. Verse 29, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Number eight, according to Abraham, who would know, hell is a place only avoided by listening to God's word and repenting. It's interesting. In this little exchange, Abraham says, in effect, look, If your brother's hearts are so hardened that they won't respond to God's word, then even a miracle like Lazarus coming back from the dead and preaching the gospel to them will not change that. That's true for many people. Remember, Jesus rose from the dead and people still didn't believe him. Human hearts can become so hardened that even a resurrection wouldn't convince them of the truth of Jesus. A proud and arrogant heart can only be broken by a sovereign work of God through his spirit, through his word. That's why our part is to pray. Amen? To pray for that brother or sister, mom or dad, grandma or grandpa, son or daughter. To pray, God, send your spirit, work on them. Open their eyes. Crush that hard, crusty, stony heart of theirs. Bring them to their knees in repentance and faith. Our part is to pray, pray, pray. And proclaim, proclaim, proclaim the gospel, the good news. To pray and proclaim. And watch God work. Watch him work. Well, Jesus revealed some amazing and agonizing truths about hell in this story. And now I want to take a few minutes and attempt to address some common questions that people have about hell sometimes. And again, I'm going to attempt to do this based on what the Bible clearly says or what it implies when it talks about hell. First, how about this one? Is Hades different than the lake of fire? Are those two different things? And my answer is yes. Revelation 20:15 distinguishes the two. Just as we saw last week that heaven is one kind of place now, but will be reformed and refashioned in the, in the future in a new heaven. So Hades is one kind of place now, and it will be a different place later. Hades is the Bible word that describes where the spirits of lost people go, where they reside, including that rich man. We saw it's a place of torment. Revelation tells us that at the final judgment, Hades will be emptied out and the souls there will be cast into the lake of fire, the final place of punishment. So they're both places of torment, but they are distinct. Hades is temporary. The lake of fire is permanent and final. How about this? Maybe you've wondered this. Was hell created for people or for the devil? And I'm going to say both. If you're talking about the lake of fire, the Bible specifically says it was prepared for the devil and his angels, Matthew five forty-one. So we know it was created for them. But in that very same verse, it says that people are going to be sent there at the final judgment. And that's confirmed in Revelation 2015, Revelation 21, 8. I don't think it was an afterthought to God. He's omniscient. He knows everything. Maybe you've wondered this, are there degrees of punishment in hell? And I'm going to say apparently, apparently. Here's some scriptures on that, Matthew 10, 15, Matthew 16, 27. Several scriptures seem to indicate or imply there are going to be degrees of punishment in hell, just as there will be degrees of reward in heaven. On one occasion, Jesus looked at some people and he said, it's going to be more bearable in the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for you. More bearable. That indicates there may be some strata or levels of punishment in hell. In another situation, he talked to or looked at an unjust servant and actually told a story about an unjust servant and said he will be cast into outer darkness. Is it going to be like Dante's Inferno, this kind of multi-level concentration camp where sinners are given a punishment that fits their crimes? I don't know. We do know this, justice demands that punishment fit the crime. And that's from God's perspective, by the way, from the judge's perspective. And we can count on God being just. How about this one? Will hell be a place of literal fire and brimstone? And I'm going to say maybe. It's hotly debated. Sorry. Sorry. I already mentioned the phrases used in Scripture that speak of flames and fire and burning sulfur. The question is, are those literal flames? And scholars disagree. Some point to hell being full of darkness, and so that seems to make fire unlikely unless there's a different kind of fire. But I can't get past the fact that Jesus used Gehenna to describe hell, this burning, smoldering trash heap whose smoke and flames burned constantly and could be seen for miles away. So I tend to believe that the flames are literal. I wouldn't die for that belief, but that's where I land. But whether they're literal or figurative, you need to know hell will be a place of pain and torment and suffering. How about this one? Do any modern-day, sophisticated people really still believe in a literal hell? (laughs) The answer is yes. It really doesn't matter if the Bible teaches it. But the answer is yes. There are people with degrees from Oxford and Cambridge and Harvard who believe in hell. In fact, hell is not such an unbelievable concept as you might think. A recent survey showed that over 70% of Americans believe in a place called hell, a place of punishment. But the same survey revealed that less than 1% of those people believe that they have any chance of going there themselves. That seems to be the modern concept that hell exists for really, really, really bad people who are worse than us. Osama bin Laden, sure. Hitler, yeah. Saddam Hussein, yeah. Serial killers and rapists and murderers and sexual predators, absolutely. Everybody seems to think, yeah, there there needs to be a final retribution, an evening out. No one wants to think that Hitler, at the end of his life, after all the atrocities he committed, could simply take a gun and blow his brains out, and that'd be the end. Everybody wants to think, no, there's got to be this final reckoning. And yet everybody, almost everybody, draws the line beneath themselves, right? <laughs> I know I'm good, but those really bad people, yeah, there needs to be something for them. How about this question, why does hell have to be so horrible, so horrific? Now listen, listen on this. I believe it's to reveal the real horror of the universe, which is sin, sin against God. Listen, sin is actually the ultimate horror in God's universe. Hell is merely the punishment. Sin is the crime. Which is worse, murder or life sentence? It's better to view hell not as a horror in God's universe, but as a demonstration of final and decisive justice in a universe marred by sin. Because sin is against God, and God is infinitely worthy of obedience, sin merits an infinite punishment. This God-centered view, this God-centered view of divine justice and human sin stands in stark contrast to those who seem to measure the appropriate punishment for sin as it relates to humanity, rather than evaluating it in light of God's holiness. Only the offended God knows the full extent of sin's awfulness. That's from Morgan and Peterson in their book. A related question. How could God, you've heard this one, how could a loving God ever send people to hell, right? How could God cause this or even allow it if he is loving? Common question. Here's my answer. He is loving. He is loving. But he is more than loving. He is loving, but he's more than loving. John Piper reminds us that the statement God is love that we find in the scriptures does not imply that God is only love, does not imply that God relates to individuals only in terms of love. David Wells writes this, the Bible tells us that God is love, but modern Christians seem to think that this constitutes an adequate theology in itself, that God is fundamentally if not exclusively love the Bible reveals not only God's love and mercy, but also his holiness and justice and wrath. You know, even, even in our limited understanding and even with tainted morality, humans would be uncomfortable if a judge sitting on the bench persistently let criminals off the hook because he loved them. Hey, I love you, man. You're free to go. I mean we would not only be uncomfortable with that, we would be outraged, would we not? You can't do that. You can't sit on the bench as a just judge and just let people go, commute their sentences, release them from the penalty of their crimes just because you love them. Even we're outraged at that. But God is love, and we should say, as the Bible does, that God's great heart of love prompted him to make a way a way for him to be able to righteously judge sin like any good judge would do, while at the same time justifying sinners and releasing them from the penalty of their sin. And that way, that plan is called, as you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful thing. How about this question? Do unbelieving sinners really suffer in hell forever? That's a good question, isn't it? Forever? I'm going to say apparently so. Matthew 25, 46, everlasting punishment. Now, I know some people will disagree. Even some people in this church will disagree. Both universalism and another view called annihilationism contend that the answer to this question is no. No, unbelieving sinners will not suffer in hell forever. But you need to know that both of those views have been rejected in centuries past by church councils, and they fall outside of historic Orthodox Christian belief, but both seem to be making a comeback these days. Universalism is the belief that everyone will ultimately be saved and hell will ultimately be empty, and that's what Rob Bell is suggesting that we consider. Annihilationism, you're familiar with this word, annihilate, annihilationism, is the belief that at some point in eternity, a person's sins will be sufficiently punished in hell. At which time God will basically say, you've suffered enough. All those sins that you committed while you were living on the earth have now been sufficiently punished, and God will mercifully annihilate them, terminate their existence, wipe them out. That's the view of those who hold to annihilationism. If you want to study this more, both of those positions and their support Um, are talked about in this book, Hell Under Fire, by Christopher Morgan and Robert Peterson. He does a great job examining the, the arguments and the support and so forth for each of those, for and against each of those positions. Personally, I still hold to the traditional view that hell is forever, just like heaven is forever. These two final destinies are paired together so often in the scriptures with the same terms and these shall go away into everlasting life, and these shall go away into everlasting punishment. They're paired together so often with those same terms that it doesn't make sense to me that the durations would somehow be different. And so for me, I totally reject universalism, that everyone will ultimately be in heaven. And regarding annihilation, I, I just can't accept it. There are just too many references to eternal destruction, everlasting punishment from what I see. But I admit I could be wrong. And frankly, I hope I'm wrong for the sake of people who are in hell. And I should say that this is not a cardinal doctrine of the faith. Christians can disagree on annihilation and still be Christians and still love each other. I just wanted you to know where I land. How about this one? Do people in hell ever get a second chance? The answer, it doesn't appear so. I mean, it's not like Abraham looked over at the rich man and said, hey, I got something for you. (laughs) I got this... This opportunity for you, I want you to seize. The Bible, I don't see anything in the Bible that speaks clearly of people getting a second chance or a redo after they die. It appears that their eternal destiny is sealed at that point. And so that begs the question, doesn't it? Who's going to go to hell? Who's going to end up in hell? Now, if we rephrase the question a little bit who deserves to go to hell? The Bible is very clear. We all do. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us, because of our sin and self righteousness, deserve to go to hell. Apart from God's grace and the gospel, that's where we'd all go. Listen to Revelation 20, verse 15, speaking of the great final white throne judgment of unbelievers. If anyone's name, yes, we're going to have names that will last throughout all of eternity. anyone's name was not found written in the book of life he was thrown into the lake of fire this says the people who will actually end up in hell are those whose names are not found written in a book a book of life or sometimes called the lamb's book of life for those people whose names are not found written in that book some of them knew all along that this would be their fate. Others were totally shocked or will be totally shocked and surprised to find this out. What? My name's not in there? you got to be kidding me. They will be banished from the presence of God forever and cast into the lake of fire. So here again, we see this division of humanity in the end. Those whose names are in the book and those whose names are not in the book. And so the question is, how do you get your name in the book? (laughs) How do I get my name written in the book of life? Here's the reality of what the Bible teaches. Those whose names are in the book of life are the true believers in Jesus Christ. Amen? The true believers. These people, and only these people, will avoid hell and go to heaven on account of having their sins completely forgiven and having received the very perfection of Jesus Christ credited to them. The righteousness of Christ. And by their eternal salvation, these saints, this community of the redeemed, the people of God will magnify the glory of God's grace forever. But those whose names are not written in the book of life are those who are not genuine believers in Jesus Christ. They may have been baptized. They may be churchgoers. They may be church members. They may be respected in the community, hardworking. They might even be highly moral, but they will end up paying for their own sin and pride and idolatry in hell unless they repent and believe the gospel prior to dying or prior to, the, to Christ's return. And suffering in hell forever, they will in effect be magnifying the glory of God's holiness and wrath forever. See, everyone will glorify God in the end. How does someone get their name written in the book of life? Repent and believe the gospel. By the way, it's called the Lamb's book of life. Who's the Lamb? Jesus. We're taught all through the scriptures that salvation is associated with this name of Jesus. Jesus. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved, the Bible says. Jesus. Came, lived the perfect life, the righteous, beautiful life. Submitted to being executed on a cross, suffered and bled and died, paying that penalty for our sins. Was it enough? Was God satisfied? Yes, he raised him from the dead three days later. He said, it's enough. My son's paid the price and now all who reject their own attempts to be good enough. And embrace and cling to the cross of Christ and his sacrifice alone. Are saved. They're the ones whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Maybe you say, Steve, what impact has studying hell had on you? Well, I thought of four things. I've been studying hell for the last several weeks. First, it exalted my understanding of God's holiness. Does it do that for you? Studying the reality of hell gave me a higher view of God's holiness. If hell is a fair and just punishment for offending his holiness by sin, then man, God's holiness must be more than I thought. It also enlarged my view of the magnitude of Jesus' death, his suffering and his sacrifice. Because in God's reckoning, Jesus' death was equivalent to the endless suffering of billions of people in hell forever. Equivalent. That's amazing. His death must must be much more than I realize. To be that satisfying to the father. Third. Studying hell heightened my own appreciation for my salvation. So I'm not going there. By the grace of God. I get up every morning these days and say thank you Lord. I didn't wake up in hell today. That's what I deserved. But because of your grace through the cross. I get to have another day of Grace. And I get a home in heaven and an inheritance and eternal life and all of that. You got to be kidding me. That's awesome news. I'm very grateful for my salvation. More so now. And fourth, studying hell has stimulated me to pray more. Pray for others. Pray for people who don't know Christ. Who have never bowed their knee to Jesus. You know people like that in your life? Did you know that if they die or if the Lord returns, if they have not repented and bowed their knee to Jesus, hell is where they will spend eternity? Justly, fairly, paying for their own sins against a holy God. It's prompted me to pray more. Find myself praying, God, work. God, send your Holy Spirit. God, open their eyes. God, break their stony, crusty heart. Grant them repentance and faith, God. Work. You've got to show up. You've got to work in their lives or you're not going to get the glory that you deserve from their life. So I find myself praying more. How do you respond to a message on hell? My prayer all week has been that you would allow the Holy Spirit to apply God's word to your life, your heart, however he sees fit. And we've left some time in this service, the next few moments, to just be silent before the Lord and to reflect on whatever it is he might be saying to you. During that time, some pastors and and spiritual shepherds and leaders are going to take a place up here and they're going to be available to pray with you for anything, anything that's on your heart that you'd like prayer for. You can come and be prayed for, be prayed with. Some of you who are believers, and many of you are, maybe you want to come and just kneel around the altar and pray for that unsaved parent or grandparent or child or friend. If you're in the room today and you're not yet a true believer in Jesus Christ, could I urge you to run to Jesus today? Run to Jesus. God does love you. He's made every provision for you to be saved if you will but leave your good works behind and begin to trust in that sacrifice that Jesus made for you. And you can come as well and talk to someone. They would be glad to show you the path. The sinner's prayer that's in the Bible goes like this. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Maybe that's the prayer that God's calling you to to pray today. So let's take these next few moments and just quietly before the Lord reflect on what he's been saying to us. If you'd like to come and receive prayer, some of our pastors and leaders, if you'd come up right now, we'd love to pray with you, okay?